welcome back. Welcome back. Today it's time for part two of the Pizen Hall mystery. If you haven't listened to part one, I recommend you go back and hear all about that first. You'll hear about how poor Rose Harsant was found in a pool of blood, charred and burned at the bottom of the stairs in her house in Pizen Hall. You will hear about how William Gardner, a local man and suspected affair haver with Rose Harsant, was uh, suspected immediately of the crime and how he is about to go to trial. And that's what we'll hear about today. I hope you enjoy the episode. That's it. Listen away. trial began in November 1902. They were quite quick in those days. So yeah, the murder there wasn't was any COVID holding up all the end of May system. murder, June arrest, November trial. I like it at Ipswich. Bring it back. Yeah, it was it held done. at Ipswich. Come on, Liz. <laughs> Representing the prosecution, Henry Fielding Dickens, double-barreled, strong. The sixth son of Charles Dickens. Oh. Really? Yes. He was the sixth son of Charles Dickens. And he was named Henry Fielding after the author Henry Fielding, who Charles Dickens admired, who wrote Tom Jones, I believe. And I also like this, though, that he's the sixth son, but he's making his way in the world. He's not just drinking cocktails and having bad teeth like his dad. He's out there <laughs> doing stuff. <laughs> right. Uh, why is he here? Because he's the sixth son. You've got to get out in the world. You can't yeah. stay in London if you've you're got to go to Dickens had a lot, I think about nine children or something crazy. Yeah, but you, you know, you don't yeah. want to stay with all the other ones. Did they just go across the country? I guess he was assigned to the case because it was big news. If you think, you know, this, this may have been a small village, but the gruesome nature of the murder and mm. the same as us, the idea that it was kind of this stormy night and there's mm. all this scandal and intrigue around it had sort of captured the imagination of, of the nation. In terms of the trial, it was a big, it was big news. Big deal. And he was in his 60s. He was a very experienced barrister. So he had a lot of experience of taking cases to court. And he was seen as being a kind of a big, a big gun, if you like, that oh, had been brought like in him. to prosecute this case. Representing the defence was a much younger man called Ernest Wilde. He was about 20 years younger than Dickens. And he had only been a practising barrister for about eight years at this stage. Cheaper. Maverick. <laughs> he would later become a conservative politician. Not a maverick. Sorry, I, I did not. I just thought he was young. Well, he was maverick kind of... in the wrong direction. <laughs> oh, God. He was kind of, you know, he was seen as the underdog anyway, because Dickens was But not was a plucky this... one. He's about to become a conservative. Well, no, years later he became, he became a conservative politician. That's still an overdog. And actually he failed to get elected on several occasions, so... Still the um, underdog. <laughs> but with overdog hints. <laughs> <laughs> the prosecution began to lay out their case. They had a lot on their side. Well, yeah. Some of it, not great. So let's recap. What do you think the prosecution, who who did they call in? What was their argument? Well, they're going to call the witnesses who heard them talking about having a possible affair. Wright and Skinner. Yes, thank you. The Alfonso. Sk- the squishy footsteps. Squishy footsteps. And, and I like your point about him being a game 
Uh, yeah, because yeah, he knows his stuff. He knows about footsteps. His he, eye is on the alert all the time for yeah. footsteps. And he knows if footsteps are fake or made up or he knows. Normally you know. he calls them prints, animal prints. But yeah. on this occasion it was human feet that made the steps. <laughs> but he's still he's still tracking. He's like, Oh, where's that from? Where's that to? The boy. The fire burning boy. The boy that saw the fire. It wasn't a boy, it was a man called Mr. Stammers. But oh. sure, he saw in my mind it was a boy. boy. Or I thought it was a boy saw the candle in the window. Yes, that's what uh, we're talking about. But the yeah. one yes. I thought it was like in my mind. It's a oh bit... well, say so there's the candle boy and the fireman. Yeah, because mm-hmm. it's a bit like when Bertie Wooster has to cycle in the storm to get the key. What happens? He just has to cycle in the storm bit... to get the key. But he cycles a long way in a storm. That's what it made me think of when you said he was cycling <laughs> in the storm. Last night, because no one else wants to go out in the storm, do they? And Bertie has to because everyone makes him. Last night, Chris and I came across some a bit of Fry and Laurie on the TV and it was very funny but I did just go oh, I wish I was watching Jeeves and Worcester yeah it'd be better it w- I mean it was good it was funny I laughed but I did think this just makes me want to watch Jeeves and Worcester it's a classic isn't it mm. could you recast it now do you think you could ever have a better a better pair than Fry and Laurie no I your was, silence just, speaks volumes I was just wondering if Noel Fielding could be Fielding uh, oh, I do, instead I, of I Stephen think, Fry yeah Fielding would be. Hang on. No, okay, you're I claiming think... that Fielding would be would be Jeeves. No, if, if, if Fielding's going to be competent Butler Jeeves, <laughs> if Fielding is anyone, I was going with Fielding could be Laurie. But his face is wide. Sure, but that's not the requirement no, no, of the no. role, Joe. I was I was going to back you up until you said it that way. So you're Fielding could be. Yeah, of course Bertie. he could. Bumbling, posh. Yeah, his face is too wide. Drinking all day. Everyone who drinks having all day a brandy, has a wife. Having a brandy in bed. Does that mean Barrett would Julian Barrett would then be Jeeves? <laughs> <laughs> well, that again, that's he's more practical. He's yeah, not wise, but I'd he's more give practical. It a try. If would, they yeah. made that, I'd give that a try. Okay. I, I think remake. I think we've just launched something. But you do, would you update it? Way. Would you update it to the modern era? No, no, because you can't be that decadent in the modern era without being a horror. You could in the nineties. Yes, the, oh, bo- oh, the, so- the boom years of uh, Blair's Britain. Yeah, oh. no, do you know what? Yes, you could, you could, you could, re- you could put it in a different period. It doesn't have Camden, to be in the twenties. Blair's Britain. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to go down Nathan Barley route, though. No, it wouldn't be barley. I mean, no, it would- it'd be champagne and lines of coke instead of brandy yeah. in bed, and that doesn't look half as classy. No, it isn't classy. No, it that's why be. it doesn't look. <laughs> Brandy, like in your pajamas, is always cool. Yeah, only if they're silk. Otherwise, you're an alcoholic. <laughs> if your pajamas, and only if a man is bringing you on a small silver tray. If your pajamas is just an old t-shirt, <laughs> and the brandy's on the duvet as well, and everything's gone a bit wrong, and there's empty Stella cans just thrown on the floor. Yeah, they, yeah. and it's bleak. that's why you have Jeeves. He takes those away. He hides your shame. Yeah, that's the whole point of Jeeves. <laughs> Oh, okay, back to the case. Sorry. <laughs> back to the case. Oh, so what else do we need in our list? Oh, yes. Well, so we've got some men. We've got some evidence men. Oh, well, we want to four. interview we've witnesses. Got we've got we witnesses. Call, we call them witnesses. And we're going to call Gardner's wife, but we're going to be really harsh with her because we think she's lying. Well, the prosecution don't call Gardner's wife. They call the, the defence call Gardner's wife. But then the prosecution mm. gets to interview her and then they go harsh. Of course, then they get to cross-examine her. Someone else that we haven't heard of in the story yet who the prosecution also call, is a man called Henry Rouse. Nice name. Rouse like grouse. You won't like him soon, Katie. Oh, no. <laughs> well, Ben Smythe. Henry surely. Rouse is another ardent churchgoer. Okay, I've lost interest. Um, and Henry Rouse, it turns out, was also 
everyone's writing letters in this village. So he had also written some letters at the time of the original scandal in 1901. He'd written an anonymous letter to the church superintendent saying he believed the rumours about William Gardner and Rose Harsant. Because he's a meddler or because he'd seen something? Who is he? He's, I think we can say that he's a meddler. Is he jealous because he really wanted to be choir master? Well, that's... Or one of the many other roles yeah, that Gardner Yeah, that Gardner was so greedily hoarding all those roles. Yeah, you can't have six but roles. hang on, if he wrote anonymously, how do we know he wrote? Because apparently everyone knew. They were like, oh, it's clearly Henry Rouse has written this oh, meddling God, letter. Oh, God, shit. Did he, was his writing like really loopy and he put hearts over his eyes? (laughs) So it's clear it was him. Then he signed it and then he was like, oh no shit, and he crossed out. (laughs) So what, but what Mr. Rouse claimed in court that he had seen was something else in the doctor's chapel. Oh. Every time I think you're going to say doctor's waiting room or something. Yeah, I find it sinister, that chapel. What he claimed he'd seen was the extraordinary sight of Rose Harsant sitting in a pew and William Gardner with his feet up in her lap, sitting next to her, I mean, his feet the in her lap. Madness of it in a church of all places. It's crazy talk. Feet on her lap. Where will it end? Now, were those feet shod or naked? <laughs> I don't. Ah. I mean, if they're like, if they're shod, that's just really gross. Because like, why would you want on your nice shoes skirts, on your, your clean Sunday skirts? If they're naked, stinky old feet. though. some people. Oh, not me. But some people like feet. Mm. Quentin Tarantino, apparently, is a foot fetishist. I wouldn't look at his face and trust him. No. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't. (laughs) I don't know shod or unshod, just that the feet were apparently in the lap. So this was seen to be a... That does seem very familiar. Oh my gosh, this is very familiar. I mean, there's no way you're doing that with anyone. Like, you know, you you could maybe tap someone on the arm or you'd be having a close conversation with someone that's innocent, but there's no way you're putting your feet on someone's lap. You can't put a toe near them. No, not like... Don't get the toes near the face. I mean, unless you're incredibly intimate, and even then, I'm not sure it's appropriate. No one really likes toes, except Quentin. (laughs) Quentin. And a man me and Ruth once met in the Q Club, but that was weird. What? What was he doing with his toes? Asking if he could see our toes. <laughs> I don't remember this toe lover. Well, we said no thank you and walked away. Did were we very polite? <laughs> no thank you, sir. No thank you. We'll keep our toes Good inside day our you, shoes. Sir, but our street will be inside our shoes and I we'll mean, be leaving. The Q Club is not a situation to get your toes out. No, the no. Key Club is where you definitely want shoes on. The floor <laughs> Very is sticky. sticky and filthy. Well, also, you're probably going to catch something as many if you The yeah. Q Club was like a scuzzy club when we were younger. Yeah, you don't want bare flesh there. A scuzzy basement club. Mm. I wouldn't have ever revealed my feet in there. I was going to say it was the opposite of a basement. It was a scuzzy attic You mean the cam bar then? Oh, Oh! do you mean the cam bar? The only clubs in Cambridge, scuzzy attic club, cam bar, scuzzy basement club, Q club. Oh, well, I said the wrong one because it was in the scuzzy cam bar that it happened. And so in my mind, I was in an attic. Well, don't get your (laughs) shoes off in there either. No, neither of them. Black tar paint. So, who knows? Rouse made this claim. Can I ask a question about timing? Mm -hmm. So, Rose is six months pregnant. Yep. You've told us that the Alfonso claims... The scandal was from May the previous year. Oh, okay. One year prior. prior. But then that's interesting, isn't it? Because if the claims were true, then they still carried on. Yes. For another six months after... That would have to be the case. That's a daring do, though, isn't it? If you're the gossip of the town, village... Yeah, to continue. And then you still carry on for another six 
Well, basically, mm. a year if they're still meeting up and she, he's still going around and killing her because he's found out she's pregnant. Yeah. So, no, you're absolutely right. So it, could, it would have had to be that they kept seeing each other after the initial scandal, which would be bold. It would be a bold thing to do in a small village. But you also do crazy stuff, don't you, when you're in love and things. Aww. Except I don't think he was in love. She was in love. He is just a kind of rotter that goes around. He's a caramel man. Yeah. So shy. I don't know why caramel has suddenly become synonymous with being a terrible <laughs> trickster. <laughs> A sticky, sugary man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Smooth beyond endurance. <laughs> <laughs> How awful to be so smooth. <laughs> but you said he was handsome and bearded. That's the worst. I'm just, I'm just saying what Roland told me. Handsome and bearded, he said. So imagine. He's tall and tanned and bearded and yucky. It's I tell he's tanned. It's Suffolk. I think what we should Everyone's consider is... Tanned. It's the fields. Broccoli dipped in caramel. Ugh. I mean, that says it all about him. One day someone will make that into a cocktail for us. So the Crisps also testified, Mr and Mrs Crisp, you remember from Providence I'm, House. I'm finding that increasingly funny. <laughs> Mr Mrs Crisp. <laughs> Mrs Crisp could not adequately give a time. You wish you were called a Crisp. I don't want to be. Joe Quaver. <laughs> Ruth Watson. <laughs> Katie Wheat Crunchy. <laughs> Crisp McNuck. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to wear orange if I was Ruth Watsit. <laughs> I'm just imagining an actual Watsit with googly eyes stuck on it. <laughs> what, standing trial? Or in the witness box? Or just fighting crime. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Mrs Crisp is asked about the timings. The googly eyes just roll around. She's just a walker's crisp with googly eyes on she it. She can't say what time she heard that scream and thud. Crisps don't know about I mean, that time. But the other thing is... To be fair, in 1902, yes. it might be fair that she doesn't know what time it is. Because like, when I wake up, I know what time it is because the alarm clock is a no, glow-in-the-dark one. I absolutely agree. It would be really hard. And if the storm was raging, you wake up for a bit maybe, like you get woken up by a thud. Yeah. You're not necessarily going to really register when that is in relation to other things. So I agree. I think it's she couldn't have really known. It's a known. bit harsh to... Yeah. I mean, it's weird that she didn't go investigate a scream, but it's a bit harsh to <laughs> yeah, say that she yeah. should know what time she was investigating a scream. In 1902, in the dark, yeah. without streetlights. Julian Fellows says that it was Mrs Crisp who found the body, but we know it's not true. What do you mean, Why does he lie? He is an absolute liar. PC <laughs> Nunn came to the stand. Oh, Nunn. He told of what he'd observed. and what I bet he was a bit nervous out. and so people didn't take him seriously, but he's such a good man and a good How detective. How old is he? We don't oh, know. Oh, I don't know about his age. Is he, a... is he too young? And I want to say he's in his... No, I think he's in his 50s. In my mind, he was 20. Well, I've just made this up. (laughs) Uh, I had him young too. The doctors who had examined the body also spoke about the nature of the wounds. They said, no way, this was a suicide. That is helpful that they were there. They told of the pregnancy. Now, perhaps the, the bit of newest information for us that came out at the trial in the prosecution's half was PC Nunn said, I found out who wrote the obscene letters to Rose. How? He just did some investigating, I guess. Did he make um, everyone write a sentence? In, uh, <laughs> I don't know writing? how. And it was a man called Frederick Davis. We don't. We, we haven't heard anything of him. Nothing. Now, Frederick Davis was another Pisa, another P. And PC Nunn said that basically, I'm absolutely certain that his alibi for the night is sound. So PC Nunn said, we looked into the obscene letters a little bit, but we found that he had a strong alibi for the night. He couldn't have done the crime. So we didn't... So in my mind, the the CD letters were like a two-way exchange, a conversation. But actually, were they just 
like stalker letters. But why did she keep them? That being the case, that's what. Yeah, yeah it's true. Yeah, it's. But then why did she keep Gardner's letters? Why that did... implies an interest. In letters. It? Yeah. <laughs> or maybe not much happens and she just keeps everything that comes from the post. You know, it was all next to her pizza Maybe hut she's studying flip. handwriting. One of the things that was remarked upon at the trial was the fact that Gardner and Rose lived really close to each other and they saw each other at church. And in which case, why were they writing all these letters to each other constantly? Why didn't mm. they just talk to each other? Secret, secret. Yeah. Like the excitement of it. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's, does that not speak in favour of the affair? The fact that there was an affair? Mm. Anyway, Frederick Davis was brought to the stand. The judge reprimanded him for his conduct. That you can write a serious letter as you want. The judge reprimanded him. There we are. Everyone was like, okay, we I mean, believe his alibi. I, we haven't seen the letters. Maybe they were really... I mean, we maybe just they don't were... know, do we? We, we don't know because no one will print them. And I suppose also the 60s... Things were quite liberal. It probably wasn't just angry. No, but 62, oh, when, Roland, 60s, when no. John Rowland was writing the Peas and Hall Mystery, that's 62, also, they're so still very... And, he's, and, he, and maybe he's going to have done the research in the 50s as well, isn't he? So that point, yeah. Anyway, I don't know, but the judge reprimanded him. Now, the letters. A note on the letters and then we'll have our last drink. The jury were able to look at the letters. Not the obscene ones. No. Where are those obscene letters, do you think? Just probably none's taken them home. None's got them in his attic. <laughs> well, or his bedside no. cabinet. I mean, not... Oh, oh. None. We like none. Sorry, none. None's a good man. No, they're probably in the evidence room, aren't they? Under what, lock in and key. Sudbury? In uh, Ipswich Market or Pizan. The jury were able to look at the letters, though. The assignation letter saying, put the candle in your window. And the letters from William Gardner. They were left to make their own decision as to whether they thought the same handwriting was evident Could in both letters. Could they not bring in a handwriting That's just expert. what I was going to say, because how... This was 1902. Did that not... That wasn't a thing. Not really a thing. And mm. also another... Mind you, I, by Christmas, I know all of my class's handwriting. I can tell, you know, when they've put their own name in the classmate of the week box and all the rest of it, so... So people could just use their eyes to, do, to look. Do any of your class do a heart over an eye? Not this year, <laughs> but I have seen it in the past. More do than you once. really strongly condone it? I, no, I, condemn, I it. condone it. Condemn it. Yeah, I condemn it. <laughs> It's in the same bracket. Don't condone it's it. In, don't no. send them to secondary school. That's like, oh, that's mind. brilliant. Can we all do that? That would be really lovely. Though it's, it's in the same bracket as using more than one exclamation mark. Oh, very seldom acceptable, apart from in a text message. I say that to them, but we're never writing text messages at school. <laughs> True. Also, another interesting point that Rowland makes is that this was really before fingerprinting came mm. in. So, so somebody, a fingerprinting expert or a sort of fingerprinting person had come into work at Scotland Yard around this exact time. But obviously that was very Not specialist and it Suffolk. hadn't got to rural Suffolk. So he says, of course, had there been the ability to fingerprint things, it could all have been so much different. Much clearer. Actually, it makes you realise how just quick it is, isn't it? You do the envelopes, bish, bosh, bash. Yeah, or the, you know, the little bottle or yeah. the, you know, you would fingerprint the whole scene. And if you found the door, you know, even the door handle... If you found on the door handle some prints, that could be enough. Those few years between fingerprinting coming in and criminals wearing gloves must have been, like, amazing. It was an absolute bonanza for the police. They were just like, (laughs) everyone is properly guilty. We can actually be sure. Yeah, so so fingerprinting hadn't come into widespread use at this point, so there was nothing like that that could be used in the trial. Is there still no murder weapon? 
Yeah, they really still talked about that. No, they didn't not. find a murder weapon. I mean, there was all sorts of supposition. Was it the the tiny bottle had that slashed her throat? No, come on. Was one of the broken pieces of the lamp used to slash? No. So I don't know. They hadn't. They didn't have a murder weapon. Shall we have the last drink? Yeah. I'm going to pop this popper. Do we record it? <clears throat> Whoa! Whoa! Now, this I thought would go first, but it didn't. So now it seems underwhelming compared to the others. You know what else? It also looks quite rational. <laughs> it's a rosé fizz. <laughs> yeah! I thought rose harsant, rosé, and I thought Katie's birthday. Yeah! A celebratory fizz. Okay, so let's drink our fizz. We can hear about some more bits. And the trial. The trial. So, Ernest Wilde, remember he's the defence barrister, he cross-examined the prosecution's witnesses as best he could to try and show holes in their story. For example, things like you said, how could you hear if you were outside the chapel, which exact thing of Genesis they were referring to. His primary witness was Mrs Gardner. She said about the bottle, why the bottle had come to be there. She said about the alibi. I think that's weak. Really weak. Well, when it came to the judges summing up, it seemed to go rather strongly against William Gardner. So mm. the judge summed up both sides. But he was basically saying the evidence is... is he's a caramel fellow. He's a, he's a caramel broccoli man. <laughs> and you should convict him. <laughs> what he actually said in particular was if the jury thought that the letters from William Gardner were in the same handwriting as the letter saying about meeting that night, they should surely find him guilty. Oh, but don't bring it down to the handwriting. I would think... Well, that was one element, but he said that that should be decisive. But the footprints is more conclusive than the... Any old person can make a footprint. Do you think, Mm. just to play devil's advocate, could it be possible that Gardner did write that letter, but someone else killed Rose? Oh, of course. And someone else, by coincidence, on the same night went in and killed her. It seems unlikely, but of course it's possible. It's possible, but if Gardner was on meeting her on that night, but we don't know the letter was about that night. Oh, was it dated? That's a good point. There's a point. I think it was dated. Oh, okay, in which case we do know, and then that ruins what I've just said. Let me just see. Because like we were saying, it it sounded like whoever it was had been around before, Mm. but we don't know that they were coming around on that stormy night. And she did keep letters. As yeah. we know, she kept letters. But she even kept letters from the local pervert, so she's definitely keeping letters. Not letters from the local pervert, sir. I mean, everyone else burns their letters from the local pervert and goes, <laughs> oh, crap, like you delete weird scam texts. But no, she keeps all of them. I can't find it, but I think it must have been... OK, if it's dated that, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. That's a very good point. OK, so the um, the judge seemed to go against Gardner in his summing up. Is a judge, I don't know about trials, is a judge allowed to be that leading? That I'm not feels sure. very leading. I'm not sure now they are, but I think they do do a sum-upping. And I think they can say that sort of thing, like, if you accept this fact, yeah, then you have okay. to accept the guilt of this person. But, of course, that would mean the death penalty for William Gardner. So that's what's at stake Yeesh. here. That's what's at stake. So it was up to the jury to decide. They went away to deliberate. They didn't take long. More surprises were to come. The foreman announced they could not reach an agreement. Oh, really? Eleven were convinced of Gardner's guilt, but the twelfth man was set on a verdict of not guilty. He said nothing in the trial had persuaded him beyond a reasonable doubt Mm. of Gardner's guilt. Gardner in the dock was weak and looked near to fainting. He was clinging to the edge of the, uh, the rail in front of him. 
The judge asked again, can you be sure you will not find an accord? And the foreman said, we will not agree. No verdict was returned. Oh, wow. In the first trial. Oh, they get a new jury. These days, a majority of 11 is enough to convict. That would be considered a fair majority and someone would still be convicted. Exactly. And indeed, when Roland was writing in 62, 11 would have been enough. But in 1902, it wasn't enough to convict him. An impasse. Gardner was taken away once more to jail. What would be next for him? The magistrates had to meet again to decide. A retrial, like Mm. Ryan Giggs. (laughs) Ryan Giggs is getting a retrial. They couldn't agree in his case either. It's Ryan Giggs. I thought he's Irish movie. He's a footballer. He's done some domestic violence, allegedly. (laughs) Verdict not returned. So it still can happen now, but I think a reasonable majority now is accepted. But if you had like a hung jury now, it can still you can still have a retrial. The jury might not agree. So a retrial. Can you believe it? The whole rigmarole begins again. And is all this time Gardner's kept in prison? He's kept in prison. Mrs Gardner and the six children are basically facing destitution. Impoverished, yeah, because he's supporting They're in a terrible, terrible way. Okay, now I feel a bit sorry for her, but maybe she didn't lie in the first place. We wouldn't be in this mess. You, Katie, you were just assuming she has lied. They thought, we'll do a retrial. I think it's true. (laughs) Surely this time the jury will reach an accord because they they were like, we're nearly there. You know, 11 out of 12. The second trial began at last in January 1903. It's not too long. It's not too long to wait. And if you're in prison, that is long. But But these days it can take years. Well, that's true. It must have been a terrible time for William Gardner. And as I say, for his wife and children. Both prosecution and defence barristers remained the same. They didn't get new people in. And it seemed that Ernest Wilde, for the defence, put in a very impressive fight this time around. He's grown up a bit. He's (laughs) learned from his experience, I suppose. He was able to cast more doubt upon the testimony of Rouse in particular, the feet in the lap man, Henry Rouse. the feet in the lap man. And it seems like, who knows what was going on with Rouse, but he was quite an elderly man. Is he the local pervert? No! (laughs) That's exactly the kind of thing Julian Fellows would suggest. (laughs) There can only be so many local perverts as well. Like we've already I mean, got one on. with the left. Who else would come up something as debauched as having his feet in her lap? Oh, that's true. But it seems like for some reason Rouse this time was he didn't come across as a good witness at all. He was reported as being very sort of scruffy looking. He came across as being quite not exactly absent minded, but untrustworthy when he was insincere or but then not maybe just telling the if truth. you've said all of it, you've done it all once and then you have to do it all again. And you've said it to the sort police. And you're old. Yeah. And you've got some perving to do. So Rouse was Rouse was a different kettle of fish this time around. He was also able to cast a bit more doubt on the muddy footprints question and the fire in the yard. He questioned them more vigorously and, you know, so showed basically, up. basically, he's just becoming a bit of a shouty Tory and now he's shouting people <laughs> and they're all going, oh, well, I'm pretty sure I saw it, but I can't really remember two or, years ago now and you were a shouty Tory at me. He's become a better defence barrister. yeah. He's learnt from the first time round. So here's something else that's really interesting that happened between the first trial and the second trial. Three confession letters were sent to the national press. Mm-hmm. Now, loons across the country. Well, that's the thing. It probably was loons. It probably was loons from across the country, mm-hmm. Katie, because uh, this is not uncommon. You no, get these mad confession letters. Confess. 
But one confession letter was not as loonish as the rest. <laughs> and was postmarked Suffolk. <laughs> and on the back said pervert of the village. <laughs> this letter turned out that it was written by someone called Albert Goodchild. And he actually knew Rose Harsant. Okay. So he knew Rose Harsant's brother, but he knew by association Charlie. Rose Harsant. <laughs> Let's say Charlie. Oh, I, may, I just made it up. It's very oh, distressing. Charlie. And he had been in the area this vague area of Suffolk, around the time of the murder. So this isn't to say that he did the crime. He was probably a loon like the rest. But what it meant was that Ernest Wilde could say there was actually, there's this thing the police haven't really looked into. There's this possibility, somebody that knew her and somebody who was in Suffolk at the time of the killing. And this hasn't been properly investigated. And really, maybe that's what you need to cast reasonable doubt it's not Ariel Boy's fault. He's only got one village and one man. You're <laughs> saying it's not Nun's fault? Yes. No, fine. But anyway, this was a new piece of information at the second trial. Mm. Also, apparently, Ernest Wilde made an extremely impressive closing argument. Mm. Everyone who saw it was in awe at what an amazing closing argument he made, passionately defending the innocence of William Gardner. At last, the jury for the second trial went out to make their deliberations. Roland says they went out for over two hours as if that's a long time, but I feel like that's yeah. not long. Yeah, they, Isn't it days? days they do, yeah, they all have to stay in hotels. I've seen it on sitcoms. They returned. Have you agreed upon your verdict? The clerk asked. Over to Roland to hear what happened next. The sensation in the court at the answer of the foreman of the jury is difficult to imagine. No, sir, he said. Oh, wow, what? Once again, the jury could not agree. Oh, wow. The judge said... Is there any chance of you agreeing? No, sir, replied the foreman. The papers reported the next day that this time the opinions of the jury were reversed. One had voted for guilty and 11 had voted for not guilty. But the evidence is the same. But a few more elements have been put into the mix. Ralph's being a shifty and untrustworthy witness. That's only some feet in a lap. This possible element of the confession letter... Somehow it was enough. Somehow enough wow. was different. So he's the jury, still out there now. The, well, Smart no, not now. <laughs> the jury themselves could have just been a slightly different the mind. mind yeah. And the opinion was reversed. Interesting, no? Yes. So what happens next? You could theoretically send someone to trial a third time. No. You could do it. Could you? It's, you can. But the Crown decided twice was enough. Gardner would not be tried again. In legal terms, this is called a nolly prosequi. Nolly mm. prosequi. Or nolly prosequi? <laughs> we did Latin GCSE, but I'm I not didn't. sure. You look you at me. You did it. I didn't. You didn't do Latin? No. I sound very posh. You didn't do a Latin GCSE? <laughs> just to be clear, I did not do that. No, I did it. Can I just say, though, I, we didn't go to a posh school. I did it as an after-school club. Bit of Latin. Chris <laughs> is did. laughing. That's no. proof that we did go to a posh school, we he says. No, we absolutely school. didn't. But yeah. We went to the time of school that the police came in lunchtime and everything was awful and people said, Fight your hair. <laughs> yeah, somehow there was a Latin after school club. Anyway, what that means is that the Crown is unwilling to pursue the case, essentially. So you're not deemed to be innocent, but they eventually have to let that you go. So bad. They just put a big question mark on your forehead exactly. and turn the marker exactly. and away. What a terrible thing to live with in a yeah. tiny village. I mean, it's he 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 didn't get hanged, so great. <laughs> but also, of course, the Surely suspicion. Surely he lost all his church jobs. Well, he but never the... went back to Peasenhall. But the first time right. around, there was a lot of evidence 
that I still think is quite strong. Yeah, well, we, we can come to it. Um, he never went back to Peasen Hall. In fact, apparently he moved to London and... And did what? Just worked in a shop. Did he get Mrs. Gardner and the children? I don't know, because I, I thought that, and I'm not sure he did. But maybe he must have. I don't know. He's got more chance of meeting more young ladies without the children of Mrs. Gardner. I don't Gardner. know. Apparently he was like a broken man by the end of the second trial. I bet he was. I mean, regardless of yeah. what he might have done or not, that's yeah. going to be a thing, isn't it? So now I say, I'm going to tell you some theories. Ooh. Mm. It's a famous unsolved murder officially because no one was ever found guilty of the crime there's a obviously still a question mark as you say over william gardner's guilt or innocence a couple of crime writers have looked at this in the 20th century and somehow come to the conclusion that it was an accident very mental <laughs> this thing i said earlier about somehow she's like slipped down the stairs she was holding the lamp the lamp dropped and broke somehow her neck like slashed itself onto the lamp but twice i know and the rah, fact rah, that both sides. she'd been sent a letter and she was six months pregnant. And she set fire to both sides of her clothes. <laughs> you could fall on a lamp and one side of your clothes burns. Yeah. Either all of you is burnt, and that is the point of ignition, or that is out. You don't then roll over and put the other side in it when your neck's been slit twice. So I agree, absurd, but that has kind of persisted as a possible solution. But I don't think really that anything supports that. I think Mentalist. the... the no no one's saying it was suicide, thank God, because that's clearly insane. But there has persisted an idea that it was a like some kind of freak accident that the gas lamp slashed her neck and then set her on fire and so absurd. Also, this thing about the um newspaper being slightly under her head. Oh, I forgot about that. Though we heard right at the beginning and I think you know, her head wasn't burned. So if it was an accident, how did a burned bit of newspaper mm. get under her head? So I think we can rule out an accident. Yes. Do you want to hear what Julian Fellows thinks? Yes, I do. I mean, I do, but you've I been mean, quite I'm not clear that he's untrustworthy. Well, let me just tell you. Let me tell you what he thinks. But we also know he's lied. Yeah, but he's I, misconstrued well, evidence. I'll tell you what I think has happened. Some other people have written that and he's just been given some lines and popped up. Rose Harsant oh, was yeah. seen as a, the beauty of the village. That's the sort of thing He's Julian just a Fellows presenter. Says. He hasn't yeah. done the work. He pretends he's done the work. but He hasn't done the work. So here's what Julian Fellows thinks. None other than Georgiana Gardner was responsible for the murder. Right. He says it was the wife. Yeah. Okay. The wife of William Gardner. Part footprints of, add up. So that's the thing. The footprints could have gone from... We haven't at any point questioned the size of those footprints, no. have we? We or haven't questioned it. She could have worn her husband's shoes. But we don't know if they <laughs> were. You can't do a murder wearing massive shoes. But she could, I don't know. <laughs> wear but, 10 socks. Oh, also, how do we know that their feet size is that different? People in Pisa in 1980 didn't have 10 pairs of socks, Joe. I'm a seven. Three at best. I'm Put a seven, Edward's a nine. I can wear his shoes quite happily sure. round to the corner shop and not fall over But we didn't okay. even, did anyone ask what size the footprints were? Well, I didn't ask. Did the gamekeeper our, would did, know. Did Senor Nunn? But Julian Fellows, that doesn't quite follow because that you're saying she could have tried to frame her husband for the murder but if she, she wore his shoes. She wasn't trying yeah, to frame she's, him. But she could have because she's so fed up of his philanthropy mm. and she's like, his, oh, his, <laughs> not that one. Do you mean his philandering? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Stop doing all these good deeds, please. <laughs> 
your charity work inquiring is putting me down massively. Um, yes, no, she could be fed up with that. And then she could go around and she's like, look, you can't have my husband's baby. I've got six of his babies. That's yep. enough babies. And um, But also, she's like, I don't want to get net caught for this. I'm wearing his shoes. He sodding did this. Sure, so you're fine. But we don't even know the footprints were his No, shoes. I know. I just, I'm, just going, I'm going with um, the theme. So Fellows makes this argument. And another thing that they make up, as far as I can tell in that programme, is the fact that Mrs Gardner has a, a child that dies soon before the crime. So they have a seventh baby, but the baby dies. Yeah, and Julian Fellows makes it like this was her motive, that she couldn't deal with the idea of... Rose having a baby when her baby had recently died. Again, I have not read anything about this anywhere else. So to me, this seems like something they've done to make the story work. Maybe there's been some different research I don't know about. I think your husband having an affair, you don't need to have a dead baby. I think that might no, that can be, it could be enough. And also what Julian Fellow says, he thinks that if William Gardner had been found guilty, she would have confessed so that he wouldn't have hung. So anyway, I find that an absurd idea, frankly. What, that it was her? Or... Yes. I don't find that it's absurd. It's easy. But what I do find absurd is the idea that she'd confess. She's gone to done some murdering. She is holding to that. Yeah. He's I the just shit that put it's... her in this situation. It seems foolish because she, you would think, say she did do it, she would know that her husband would be the prime suspect and that they would be destitute. The whole family would be made destitute. Maybe crime of passion, though. Maybe she sees the reply from the letter you know, put your light in your window. Yeah, they never found any replies at Gardner's, but it's not to say there weren't any. They could have been destroyed. Yeah, and so maybe she finds a letter or something and goes berserk, but that doesn't mean she's setting up her husband and that also doesn't mean she's thinking it through. No. But also very easy to blame a woman. Yeah. Well, Julian Fellows says it almost like, oh, it's the mistake of the police at the time was not to imagine that a woman could commit such a crime. What a... He suggests that Mrs Gardner slashed Rose's throat with the bottle. Slash, slash, the tiny bottle. That's stupid too. That seems stupid. (laughs) Stupid fellows. That's the opinion of Julian Fellows. I just wanted to tell you it. But are there other opinions of people that are maybe more informed than Julian Fellows? Well, Roland has his own ideas, but what I would like to hear is what you think. Oh, cripes. Based on what we've heard. I'm not sure I feel convinced about Gardner. What, his innocence or his guilt? His guilt. Either. Yeah, I feel like it's very circumstantial and could be anyone else in the village. I think the two things that are problematic for me is the idea of comparing the handwriting. Yeah. Because that is not strong enough to do anything one way or the other. Do you think, though, that given the smallness of the village, it seems unlikely to me that there was like a, a third man, you know, yeah. someone mm. that was unknown. That's true. Someone unknown that Rose had been seeing with nobody and that no one in the village... Because it sounds like as well, you've got the games master up at five, you've got this other person yeah, at 7.30, well, we'll... you've got people whizzling around the village at all hours. I feel like if it was a stranger, if a stranger was around, someone would have noticed a stranger. You also, the other thing is with the stranger, how would they have known to go around the back and the light system and where would they have been till 10? They wouldn't till... have known about the light system. But also where would they have been from 10 till 12? The lights yeah. on at 10... Were the crisps aware of her having lovers? Well, no, but or being this pregnant. is the whole Six thing. Six months pregnant. So later, people did say, oh, we had a suspicion about her being pregnant, but who knows if they said that just because once it had been proved I'm or sorry not. to be bleak, but my money is on it 
being William. Do you want to hear what John Rowland thinks? He studied it at length. Yeah, go on. For his book, The Peas and Hall Mystery. And we trust him a bit more than Gillian I Fellows. trust him. He comes to the same conclusion. He says William Gardner is far and away the most likely suspect and most likely did commit the murder. He says he didn't know if he went round there with the intention mm. of killing mm. her. Of passion, slashing, slashing. He thinks that perhaps an argument about the pregnancy got out of hand. If they were, you know, Rose had revealed the pregnancy or they were fighting about mm. the pregnancy, she was asking for support or money. William didn't know what to do. He thinks that William may have had like a small, just a knife on him, like a dinner mm. knife to cut his dinner up and slash, slash in a fury. He doesn't think that William deliberately set fire to her. No. He thinks that that will have been caused when the yeah. lamp smashed, basically. That sounds more realistic than the, the medicine yes. bottle. Yes, because the, what he that says is... is ridiculous to He's me. like, what maniac would think that a tiny bottle of paraffin yeah. would be enough to burn a body. So to him, that whole thing is a red herring and he says it was a mistake of the prosecution yes, to agree. try and pin the that ideas on the... And the handwriting is confusing. The... And... Yeah. He says he's not entirely convinced by all the rumours, like the story about the feet in the lap or the whispering, but he <laughs> says you can well enough believe that people in the village knew something was going on and that it came out in these accusations that weren't necessarily true. So in... His opinion, the slashing, a fury, she stumbled, the paraffin lamp broke, her nightdress caught on fire and William ran away from the scene. And he said that he thinks that William Gardner basically got away with murder because the prosecution tried to prove too much. They tried to fit every tiny piece Mm. into the case and a lot of the pieces didn't fit. And that meant that William was acquitted or not proven and that's what you said earlier joe you basically like they've complicated this i think so with that whole bottle yeah the whole bottle thing and the just unnecessary and the yeah yeah, yeah. just like and... stick to the bare facts that's yeah. enough i'm kind of inclined to agree because i think you can't just get a suspect out of nowhere so that's the story of the peas and hall murder a man got away with it we might conclude I mean, I have to say, I enjoyed the elements of looking for clues. I really enjoyed that. I'm sorry for Rose, though, that she didn't get her... It reminds me a little bit of... um, I know you guys aren't true crime buffs, so you probably don't know it, but The the Staircase, which was a series, a recent true crime series about a man who was convicted of killing his wife, and he said she fell down the stairs. And he basically ultimately did an Alfred plea, which is where you're saying you're not guilty, but the state had enough evidence to convict you but if you it's a really interesting series the staircase but what i think about it is that he basically he killed his wife but not in the way that the prosecution claimed Mm. so the prosecution set up this quite elaborate story Mm. about her being like beaten with this fire stick that i don't think is is feasible at all when in fact it was probably just something much more simple and they just overreached. They overreached and ultimately that meant that their case fell apart. Bamboozled the jury. Well, he was found guilty, but then the case fell apart on appeal, basically. So anyway, I think it's that sort of thing. I think, you know, sometimes you just go with the simple stuff. Yeah. But you yeah. want to prove your case so hard, you start bringing in a tiny broken bottle. Yeah. Anyway, that's the Peasen Hall. Wow, well, I enjoyed that a lot. Me too. I hope it's not too much of a downer. We don't need to learn any lessons, but no. we can if you want. Don't keep the letters from the village pervert or the texts. Yeah. 
because there are better things on the internet to keep you warm at night and you will just <laughs> end up having a... Get rid of the text from the village pervert, everyone. Because you have a bad mark on your character when it comes to your murder inquiry. Okay, great. Yeah. Strong. Okay. I think that is strong learning. Good learning. <laughs> okay, my loves. Well, we'll call it a day. Happy birthday, Katie. Thank Woo! you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back soon enough with more stories for you. See you again soon. Bye-bye. It's the end. <laughs>